Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. We read from Mark's Gospel, the second chapter, beginning at verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. They came and asked Jesus, Why is it that John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, The friends of the bridegroom cannot fast while the bridegroom is with them, can they? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then on that day they will fast. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the patch shrinks, the new tears away from the old, and a worse tear is made. No one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will pour out, and the skins will be ruined. Instead, new wine is poured into new wineskins. This is the gospel of our Lord. We pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Your fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, the bridegroom who has come to take us to the wedding supper in heaven. If you compare Mark's gospel to the other Gospels, the other three Gospels, what's striking about Mark's is that it almost reads like a, a action thriller. He just he moves so quickly from activity to activity of Jesus. We're, we're only in about the middle of the second chapter in our Gospel lesson here, and yet Jesus has already been incredibly busy. He's already been baptized. He's already tempted by the devil for 40 days in the wilderness. He's already cast out demons. He cured uh, Peter's mother-in-law who was suffering from a fever. He cast out even more demons, preached throughout Galilee, and even gave a lame man his legs back. He's been incredibly busy. Today we see a, a somewhat shocking activity of Jesus. Today Jesus blows up religion. I don't know what you picture Jesus as having been like, his, his mood, his tenor, what he was like as a teacher during his ministry on earth. I think I always thought of him as kind of gentle and, and kind and, and maybe even a little tame. But when you actually read the accounts of his ministry, you don't get that picture at all of Jesus being tame or timid. In fact, he seems to go out of his way to poke the tiger of the time to offend the elitists of his day, the religious leaders. He performs so many miracles on Sabbath days just to stick it to them, just to offend them. Uh, and, and because of that, the Pharisees were keeping a very watchful eye on him. They were obviously following him around. They knew whether his disciples were fasting or not. They were seeking to disqualify him, discredit him. In today's terms, what they wanted to do was cancel Jesus out of Israelite society and culture. The the issue we're dealing with here today was fasting. They noticed that Jesus' disciples didn't fast even while the the Pharisees of the disciples and John's disciples fasted. Now, We don't think much of fasting in the New Testament. I don't know if any of us have really ever thought about it at all. But but this was a centuries-old tradition among the Jews. Fasting was a very big deal for them. 
it would be like today if you all of a sudden got a new pastor and the new pastor said, well, we're not going to have Christmas trees at Christmas. We're not going to have Easter lilies at Easter. You know, all the traditions that you've come to associate with your church and your faith, we're getting rid of all of them. We're not doing it. That's how serious this was, how offensive and how much it would have poked the, the Jews in the eye that, that Jesus' disciples were not fasting. Why would he do that? Why would he get rid of a tradition that was so old, so familiar, that many regarded it almost as a sacred tradition? Well, the first reason comes right out of the Old Testament. God did command his people to fast, but only on one day a year, the day called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. God did command his people to not eat from sunrise to sunset on that day, to, to instill in them, to remind them of their sin, to, to bring them to sorrow over their sin, and to lead them to confess their sin. That's the only time God commanded his people to fast throughout the entire Old Testament. But over time, they added additional fasting days. They added days to remember and to mourn over the destruction of Jerusalem after they returned from the exile. And the the very devout, the very pious, the very religious of the Jews added two days each week. They would fast every Monday and every Thursday because apparently the, the Moses went up on Mount Sinai on a Thursday and he came back down on a Monday. And so out of recognition of that, the very most pious of the Jews would, worship, would fast twice a week. If you add that all up, they're fasting over a hundred days a year. This was something they took very seriously. This was something very closely linked to their religion, something that they viewed as making them right with God. Now, we're not Jews, and we don't live in the Old Testament, so how should we view fasting? Well, there's nothing inherently wrong with it. God has not forbidden fasting in the New Testament. Martin Luther in the small catechism says that it may serve a good purpose, fasting, in preparation to receive the Lord's Supper, that, that you can use your stomach as an instrument to focus your mind and your heart on how badly you need to receive the forgiveness offered in this meal. You may have heard that it's, it's becoming a little more trendy these days to, to have a diet plan where you alternate between fasting and feasting. That supposedly, when you, when you fast for an extended period of time, that can serve to reset your system and, and ensure that you're, you're healthier. And today, I'm going to agree with those, those doctors and those dietitians who, who suggest that it may be good for us to fast from time to time. Not, not necessarily because it, it makes you healthier. I'm not a doctor. I can't guarantee if it's going to make you healthier or not. But because, I believe, if we, if we retake control of our bodies through fasting, we can free ourselves from the tyranny of that idol called dieting. You know how dieting has become a false religion in our country today? It goes by many names, Weight Watchers, Keto, Atkins. And you know how it works, right? There. There are these high priests of these various diet plans and, and they have rules for you to follow and they, they claim to have secret knowledge about nutrition that if you follow them, 
you'll, you'll be able to sculpt yourself the perfect physique and your, your gastrointestinal health will, will immediately improve. And, and really, all you have to do is exactly what they say and, and buy their book to do it. And if you've ever tried any of those, if you've tried this type of idolatry in your life, you know what happens, right? There's, there's the rule book. What happens when you break the rules? Say, for example, you know, it's, it's getting to be a wedding season. Say you can't help yourself from taking that second or maybe that third slice of wedding cake, even though you know you're not supposed to. You feel guilty, right? That's the first aspect of this false religion is guilt. So when you feel guilty, then you confess your sin, right? I, I shouldn't have eaten that. I'm, I'm bad. I was naughty. Then you have to do penance, and you, you say, well, I'll make it up. Tomorrow I'm just going to have a salad, and I'm not even going to put dressing on it. And then you do the rituals necessary, right? You say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go beyond that. I'm going to go for a walk, or maybe I'll take a jog today. You know what that sounds like? Guilt, confession, penance, rituals. That's a religion, right? That is a religion. And if you've ever gotten caught up in that religion, you know that there's no joy in it. You know that more often than not, the, the idol of dieting takes the joy right out of your life, that you can't enjoy eating the food that God has graciously given us to eat. Now, again, I'm not saying that all dieting or fasting is wrong, of course. Sometimes our doctors order us to be on certain diets. In fact, they can be very good. Fasting can be a very good thing. I think in, in a large way, it allows us to, again, assert the new man, the, the strength and the energy of the new man over our bodies. It's a way of, of telling our bodies, you belong to me. I don't belong to you. I don't serve you. You serve me. It's a way to remind ourselves that we don't have to give in to every desire that we face. We don't have to give in to every temptation, everything we feel inside. We don't have to scratch every itch. And it can be, it can be good and healthy in a spiritual, spiritual way, too. It can help our prayer life, I think, right? If you're not busy making something, cooking, baking, grilling, these hands have time to be folded in prayer. If you're not busy chewing and swallowing, your lips have time to speak to your Heavenly Father in prayer. It can be healthy that way. It can also be healthy to remind us of what we are. Because when you feel that aching pain of hunger in your belly, it's a reminder that you're dust and you're going to return to dust. Hunger is a reminder of our mortality. God didn't create Adam and Eve to ever feel that hunger, that ache, that pain. But it's a reminder to us to, of what we are. We're sinful. And we're going to die because of it. Hunger is a, a sign of that. So it can be good to fast. But here's the key. It's not good enough for God. You can never fast enough for God. And that was the mistake that the Pharisees and the Jews made, was thinking that if they fasted religiously, devoutly, that God would be happy with them. You know, even in the Old Testament, when God commanded his people to fast, it was for their good. 
On the Day of Atonement, it was for their good, so they would remember what they were and, and, and cling to God's promise of forgiveness. And, and now that we're in the New Testament, it's irrelevant. What you put into your body, or how often you eat, or diet, or exercise, or whatever, whatever it is you do, is totally irrelevant to your relationship with God. You're not, you're not judged by God based on what you put into your mouth. Jesus had put it in terms on the, on the other side. He put it in negative terms. He said, it's not what you put into your body that makes you evil. It's what comes out that makes a person evil. Fast, don't fast, it's irrelevant in your relationship with God. Okay, so what's the point then? Well, why weren't Jesus' disciples fasting? He, Jesus says, The friends of the bridegroom cannot fast while the bridegroom is with them, can they? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Jesus makes a very obvious point, right? When you go to a wedding, do you fast or feast? You feast. It's a time of joy, right? And Jesus is saying that as long as I'm here with you, it's a time to feast. It's a celebration. It's like a wedding reception that never ends. But he also goes on to say, But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then on that day they will fast. I think Jesus there is talking about Good Friday. I, I don't imagine that the disciples went to an all-you-can-eat buffet for lunch as their Lord and Savior hung bleeding and dying on the cross. But apart from that, when Jesus is there, it's a time to celebrate. It's a time to... To feast. That's even, that's even reflected in our, our Christian church here calendar. You know, we, we usually talk about the 40 days of Lent, and that's a time for repentance, and, and some people fast throughout those days. Um, but if you actually look at a calendar and you count the number of days from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday, you don't get 40, you get 46. The point is that Sundays don't count. Even while we are are contemplating our sinfulness and what Jesus had to do to save us for 40 days of Lent, the Sundays are exempt. We are reminded each Sunday, even during Lent, that even though Jesus would have to go to the cross to die for us, he would rise again. And that's a reason to celebrate, not to mourn. The point is that Jesus is making, he's drilling deeper here than just what you put into your body. He's really talking about how a person is made right with God. John Calvin famously said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Meaning that we can, we can take anything that God has given us, any good blessing that God has given us, and turn it into a false God. Since we're talking about fasting, let's just use fasting as an example. So you fast. And it does help you in your spiritual life. It does free up some time for prayer. It does remind you of your sinfulness and your need for forgiveness. But then it's so easy for our minds to go beyond that. Like the Jews, well, if a little fasting is good, then a lot of fasting is better. Then God must think I'm even better if I fast religiously, maybe even two days a week of fasting. And just like that, you've created an idol. Just like that, you fabricated your own religion. And it doesn't have to be fasting. It can be anything. It can even be coming to church. If you think your coming to church makes you right with God, that can turn into an idol. It can be a spouse. It can be a child. It can be a hobby. It can be anything good. 
that God has given us. We can turn it so easily into an idol that leads us away from God because any religion that is dependent upon what we do is Christless. It's salvationless. It's graceless. You can't have salvation by works and salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And Jesus illustrates that point. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch shrinks, the new tears away from the old, and a worse tear is made. Jesus is saying there that he didn't come to be a, a patch on the, the torn shreds of the Old Testament law that God gave on Mount Sinai. In other words, he didn't just come to fill in the gaps for the Israelites in those few areas where they weren't perfect. And don't we tend to think that way ourselves too? I'm pretty good, but I know I've sinned here and there, and I just need Jesus to take care of those specific areas, like a patch. Well, that's, it couldn't be farther from the truth. The truth is we are sinful from birth. The truth is that there is nothing good that lives in us, as Paul said. Jesus didn't come to be a patch on an old system that says you can make yourself right with God by what you do. In fact, he came to tear it up completely. Remember on Good Friday what happened in the temple when Jesus died? That curtain, that heavy, thick curtain as wide as a man's hand was torn in two to represent that Jesus had torn down the Old Testament law. It didn't need to be kept anymore. That God and sinners like us were reconciled. We have been brought to peace by what Christ has done that we don't have to do anything anymore to please God. So what do you do with all of your good works? What do you do with the tattered rags of your righteousness that you, you carry around with you? Well, what do you, what do you do when you have an old tattered pair of pants and, and you also have a, a brand new pair of pants? You throw the old ones away, right? So Jesus is telling us, get rid of your good works. Throw them away. They're filthy in God's eyes anyway. Anyway, They're tainted with sin. Get them, throw them away, and instead put on the pure spotless robe of Christ's righteousness that he gave you when you were baptized. Jesus uses another picture. He says, No one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will pour out, and the skins will be ruined. Instead, new wine is poured into new wineskins. I don't know anything about wine, but what I understand is that once you've used a wineskin for long enough, it becomes kind of dry and brittle. It can't stretch anymore. And, and new wine is still fermenting. It's still bubbling, and, and it will burst that wineskin. And the point is, Jesus cannot fit into any sort of legalistic, regulation, law-based religion that we might concoct for ourselves. Jesus won't fit in it. He'll explode it. It will burst, he says. In fact, the, the same word for burst he, years, he uses here is the word for fulfill. As in when Jesus said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. The picture Jesus is using is that he, he poured himself into the dry, brittle wineskin of the, of the law that God had given that no one else could have ever kept, and Jesus kept it. He fulfilled it for us so that we don't have to keep it anymore. But, but you can't patch, you can't put Jesus, the new wine, into an old way of religion. And that old way of religion is so stuck in our minds 
that we have to do things to make ourselves right with God. And so Jesus' main point here is that it can't be done. You can't make yourself right with God, but you don't have to because he's done it for you. Jesus is the end of religion. He's the end of rules. The, the, the message that the Christian church is to proclaim is that you are already at peace with God. You have been reconciled with God by virtue of what Jesus has done for you. Christianity is not what many people think or, or call a religion. It's not about rules and regulations. You don't come here to be told how to live your life or what you should eat or when you should eat or what you should wear. You come here to receive the forgiveness that Jesus has purchased for you. That's why it's such a falsehood when you see those, those coexist bumper stickers that make it seem like yeah, Christianity is the same as Buddhism and Islam and Mormonism and atheism. It's not. All of those man-made religions are totally based on the good works that you do, on obeying commandments to be right with God. Christianity is just the opposite. It's not about you doing, it's about what Christ has done. And when you have that, then you have true joy, right? Have you ever, have you ever dieted and, and felt joyful or free? Isn't it just the opposite that when you're, when you're doing that, when you're following the rules, the manual, whatever, the guidance, you feel guilty and burdened? If you have any Catholic friends, just ask them how they feel. If they feel compelled to fast during the days of Lent, ask them, does that make you feel joyful to do that? Or does that fill you with guilt? Does it feel like a burden on your shoulders? The bridegroom is here today. Jesus is here with his forgiveness. And that's not a reason to fast. That's a reason to feast. That's a reason for joy. So, honestly, I don't care. You can go, go diet, go exercise, go fast. That's fine. That's really irrelevant with your, as, it, as it pertains to your relationship with God. Go ahead and do those things. But don't start to believe that they make you right with God. You will want to leave here. You will want to keep the Ten Commandments. But don't do it because you think the filthy rags of your own righteousness can make you right with God. You will want to come back here to church to be reminded of your baptism, to hear the words of absolution, to receive your Savior's body and blood. You might even want to consider fasting before you eat this meal on a Sunday morning. But don't do it for God. Don't think that he cares whether you eat or don't eat. Do it for yourself. Do it to remind yourself how empty you are inside and how much you need this meal which gives you the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. Jesus is here. The bridegroom is here. This is no time to fast. This is a time for us to feast. We rejoice when we know that we are right with God in Him. Amen.